we were speaking about love. We said the love is intense, yeah, a glow of intense love, right? And lastly, we spoke about it how when we say love, we actually mean a feeling of love. And so it's important to remember what love feels like. Yes. Is the only way to get this love with God through His kindness? We're about to talk about that. Okay. Now, in describing this love, yes. So this book was written for the Benoni. Mm-hmm. If in this world, God's manifestation is hidden to us, how? Are we supposed to fully develop a, this kind of a love, the appropriate love, if we can't actually sense fully his manifestation? Well, that's, the, that's what Seichel is. Seichel is the power to come to be aware of truths that you don't sense with your physical senses. That's why Seichel is involved. And a Benoni can do that? Yes. Anybody can do that. Can a Russian? Maybe. It depends. Chapter 17. Some Rishayim can't. If they've been very, very bad. But we won't talk about that right now. Okay. That's like, you know, most people can do most normal human activities, but sometimes things happen to people and then they can't. Like, most people can walk, but some people can't. Okay. It's kind of like that. By the way, you do this with people. You can't actually see other people. I mean, for all you know, if you want to be really skeptical about it, the only thing you know about me is that, uh, you know, I'm physically present. You don't actually know that there's any mind inside here. Maybe it's just like a recording device, some sort of robot. We know you're not a robot. How do you know? Because I've seen you drink water. <laughs> no. The way no. you know, the way you know, the way, the way, the way, the way you know that I'm not a robot, and I'm not going to get into this more specifically, is you have something called seichel, and because you have this thing called seichel, you are able to pick up on immaterial aspects of reality and integrate them into your sense of what is real and what isn't real. That's actually how we live our lives. This is just pushing it to its, taking that and and put and saying that that has to be pushed further. But if you want to... Now, there's a totally separate thing, which is, is this something that comes easy to most people? No. Is this something that comes naturally to most people? No. But I don't believe anywhere in Tanya that was, anything was promised to be easy or natural. So, yeah. I feel like I either didn't phrase it properly or I'm just not understanding your answer. But if, if God is in our hearts... And we're, but we don't know that. Like, we can't sense the manifestation. Is Seichel, like, glasses we have to put on? Yes. And then you can sense things. You can think of it that way. No, really. It's a, it's a, it's a way of perceiving reality. And most of us use our Seichel. No, they were, most of us are not really using the Seichel of the godly soul. And even the Seichel of the animal soul we're using in a very, like... Toned down, low level. It's usually what happens when you hit around 20s. You start leveling off your use of your seichel. So despite the concealment, our seichel allows us to love mm-hmm. God. That's, what, that's fundamentally what differentiates a human being from an animal, is that they have seichel. Or one of the things that fundamentally is that a human being can choose to become aware of things through a process 
that are not sensed with the normal senses and then live life based on that. I mean, that's how human beings have something called culture. So we actually like, and we, and we, not only do we have culture, we can think about culture and criticize culture. We can even have a culture about being cultural critics, right? So you're having an immaterial relationship with an immaterial thing that we take very, very seriously. That's how human beings operate. If you think about what you do most of the time, you are engaged with things that are really just means to things that are not really material. Most of your life is not spent taking care of your hygiene, your caloric intake, and protecting you from the elements and from threatening um, other animals, right? Most of your mental energy is directed at what? Things that are interesting, ideas, learning, entertainment, stories, art. Yeah. These things are really moving towards things that are more immaterial. Yeah. Even, even um, you know, reminiscing about what was, right? So you're talking about the past. The past isn't here. So you used to, I mean, live like that all the time. The question is, can you just take that and move to a whole different level of what's present in reality, which is the greatness of God? Which, granted, is very hard. I'm not saying it's not. Okay, let's assume that we have moved to the point that we're now still talking about the love. Okay, now there is a lot of description of this love. So we those things said is that it's an actual feeling and it's intense. And how do we understand what is meant by intense? What makes the love intense? You, yeah, you can't ignore it. Now when we say can't ignore it, it means you're incapable of ignoring it. Or the love is the kind of love that it can't be ignored. You, with a power of will, can ignore any emotion. Right? But some emotions just kind of wash over you and you move on, and some emotions, they nag you, they, they, they draw you into them. Okay? So we're talking about that kind of emotion. And then it describes as follows. Like burning coals. The love is like burning coals. So here, in order to understand, we have all need to know something about burning coals. Okay. Why is there a market for coals? What? This is I think if you were to like look at the. Um, Amount of coals and those two things. I think it's I overwhelmingly the second. I don't, I don't know they how get they coal. relate to Christmas, but I know that you use them. If you're bad, you get them if you're bad. You don't actually do it. Okay, oh. we're going to like not have that discussion right now. And then they're used on grills. And they're used on grills. Okay. And fires and hookah. Okay, why? Because it's a source of energy. It's a source of energy. Because you burn it. It's yeah. It's a fire. Why don't you just use paper? Because paper doesn't sustain fire the same way. Ah, paper doesn't sustain fire. Paper doesn't sustain fire. Now, this is one more interesting thing about coals. This is a test to see barbecuing skills. Okay? How can you tell... If the coal is really burning. It's glowing. It's, it's flakes, ashes. That's right. Yeah, yeah blood. 
Right? When, the, when you see that black coal and there's flames jumping out of it, right, the, 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 it's not fully caught on fire yet. It's not fully burning. There's fire on the outside and that can actually go out very easily. When that flame starts to die down, it starts to turn gray. And then if you blow on it very gently, you see it glow red sometimes, or you have enough of them together, you see it glow red. Then what do you have? That, and then the coal is it's really burning. That's when you put the meat on. And that's when you put the meat on, right. This is why this is a test of, of your barbecuing skills. Because you put the meat on when, when it's got those big, impressive flames, what you're going to get is not going to taste very good. The outside. Um, you, it'll burn the outside and not cook the inside. <laughs> yeah. Plus, if you have lighter fluid, it'll smell like lighter fluid. Because it's usually at that point just burning the lighter fluid. It's not even burning the uh, coals. So, now, why emphasize that this love is like burning coals? It destroys itself. What? Well, mm-hmm. we'll get to that later. But that's true about all love with desire. We're going to get to that later. That, that, that's not unique to coals. Anything that's analogized to fire is going to have that element of self-destructing eventually. Why, why would you compare this love to coals? What did we just say about coals? I said two important things. Number one, the, the fire is sustained. When the flame dies down, that's when it's the hottest. That's right. Which means, when a person is having, a, when a person is experiencing a love, which is very intense, it's very powerful, it overcomes them, it's, 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 it's inspiring, it's uplifting. Would that be described like a burning coal? If we had to use a fire analogy, what would that be like? What's it called? Blow torch. Anyone ever seen flash paper? Uh. You have ever seen flash paper? Yes. Has you ever, okay, if you, haven't seen, if you haven't seen flash paper, you can answer this question. You ever seen a magician throw fire out like this? Uh-huh. Okay. Now, can fire just come out like that? No. Okay. So there's obviously something burning. What's the thing that's burning? Oh, I guess Now, why is it called flash paper? Because it flashes with fire. Right, and, and it's, it, goes out it, it, it burns, and it burns so quickly that all you see is a flash of. Right? I mean, some paper burns slower, right? But you can make paper that burns. Right? And then what you have is you have this really impressive flame. And magicians, that's what magicians do. Or one of the things that they do, they do many things. But one of the things magicians do is that they use flash paper to make it seem as if they just can fire. Wait, how do they ignite it? I don't know, I'm not a magician. A lighter? You're a robot. (laughs) (laughs) So, now, if we're going to compare the love of the godly soul to fire... And that's actually a fair comparison. It's an accurate comparison. Um, there's much biblical and rabbinic and Kabbalistic source for that comparison. Then what's the advantage of doing his bonus? Is that the love becomes like a burning coal as opposed to being like flash paper. Okay? And that's what I want to talk about. There is a criticism of the approach of the Tanya here. And there's a counter-criticism in defense of the Tanya, and both of them are bad. Both of them are wrong. Both of them are superficial and um, not well thought out. 
The criticism of the Tanya is that when you read the Tanya, it sounds like, well, the only way to ever love Hashem, the only way to ever bring out the love of the godly soul is through this process of his bonus. And that sounds pretty, you know, like an extreme statement to make. But nobody who never, people who are not doing his bonus never experience the love of, their, of, of, of godliness, the love of their, of their godly soul that never happens. That's, I mean, that's, not only does it seem extreme, it seems to be counter to what a lot of the things that Chabad itself does. Trying to, you know, awaken people's neshamas in all sorts of interesting ways. Okay. And then the counter criticism is, well, if you're not doing his bonus, then it's not real love. It's all fake. Now, the, the issue is, is that we have to differentiate between two different dimensions, two different parameters. One is, let me use the analogy, so when, one is fire. Okay? Now, what would an example of fake fire be? So, you know, like something that looks like fire, right? Like yeah, you can have things that from a distance, if you're not examining them closely, they're just not fire. But you are deluded into thinking they're fire, right? You know, somebody who's never seen a video of fire might for the first time, you know, there's fire there. No, it's not a fire, it's just a video of a fire, right? There's a lot of things that could appear as fire and are not in fact fire. Hotel lobbies, I've seen that. Yeah. Like a fireplace with the screen. Right. So we have to understand whether it is fire or isn't fire is one question, right? Then there's a separate question, which is, does the fire, fire only exists when when something is holding on to it. When something is, right, it has to have some kind of fuel that's, that's keeping it in place, right? So what, if you, the fuel that you have is the kind of fuel that just burns up really quickly, then what, kind of, then what kind of fire do you have? It's like a flash of a flame. In fact, you want to hear some interesting chemistry? What's the difference between a, a burning and an explosion? What? Burning slower? That's it. That's the only difference. Burning, if you can burn the fuel all at once, it's called? Explosion. If you can, if the fuel has to burn successively, then we get, no, if it's burned successively, like one bit, then another bit, then another bit, then another bit. Fire? Then you get, then you get what you get, fire. Which is why, just to give you a simple little illustration of this, take gasoline. Does gasoline explode? Anyone know gasoline explodes? Gasoline itself doesn't explode. Gasoline explode doesn't explode. Do you know why? Because when you set gasoline on fire, which part is burning? Only the top, only the surface, because only the surface is exposed to the air. But the vapors of gasoline are mixed with the air. And so what happens? All the gas vapor burns at once, and then it makes, makes an explosion, which is why a full gas tank is safer than a half ga- full gas tank. It explodes. Totally fake. And then the fire keeps burning. Totally fake. Cars don't explode like that. Um. It's movies. However, to quote my chemistry, to quote my chemistry teacher, you don't generally think of grain silos as explosives. But little pieces of wheat chaff, and you have a whole, you know, three-story building full of this wheat chaff just floating in the air and all of it's flammable in one spark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's, um, a street in Yerushalayim called Kanfei Nisharim. Mm-hmm. Kanfei Nisharim has a big bakery. Next to the big bakery, there is a mill. I don't know if it's still active. 
It's um, on the way to a neighborhood called Harnof. And there's big, big sign written on the side of the, of the mill there. Um, no smoking. Why? What, what blow up. doesn't blow up? What's going to blow up? What's inside the mill. What's there that's going to blow up? The little particles in the air. Because if, if, if something burns a little bit, and then 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 a little bit, so you have a sustained burn. If something burns all at once, you have an explosion. Flash paper, it burns, but it, the process it burns a little bit at a time, but it goes so fast. So there's this whole other dimension to fire, which is you can use up all the fuel at once, and then you go boom, or you can have this sustained burn. Okay. Now, which is more impressive if you're watching it from the outside? Yes, we'd say an explosion, then like a big flash, like flash paper. And then like when you watch coals, after like the, the, the flames have died down, you're ready to put the meat on, there's like nothing to watch. It's like not that interesting. So if you are observing love of Hashem from the outside, the love of the godly soul, which kind of love looks more impressive? The explosive love. And then the middle would be this like big flash of flame. And then the one that looks least impressive, and that if you don't actually know what you're looking at, you might miss it altogether, is the love that looks like a burning coal. Oh, so is that like, you know, the bachelor seems really like, oh my gosh, true love, because they're doing all these roses, but then like when you actually cultivate like a marriage and like a building relationship. Yes. So I'm going to give you a story of love like burning coals. It's a personal story. About my grandparents. Because I think it illustrates. Okay. So my grandfather, Al-Washam, he had Alzheimer's. And one of the things that happens with Alzheimer's is that um, the mind goes. And eventually he was living in a veteran's hospital. Because he was a veteran, fought in World War II, so he was able to get that kind of medical care, which is pretty good. And my bubby, she used to go visit him regularly. And she was would go and take his. She would bring her his laundry home and do the laundry at home and bring it back. I mean, like she really like tried to be there all as much as possible. And it got to the point that his mind was so far gone that he could not tell you his own name. He couldn't tell you who anybody was. He didn't know anything about his like. If you were to ask him like what had happened in his life. I mean, he carried on conversation, but the conversation was just like, what's about like right here, right now? Um, and like, this interesting is that character still remains in Alzheimer's. So like, just this is a story just before that. When, before he went to the VA home, um, or so when he was the name, when he was still a little bit okay, a little bit not as far gone, she used to take him home for sometimes for like a day or two if there were some other like, of the children, grandchildren there. And so one time was Shabbos and she was like, like, what can I do to help? And so my uh, grandmother said, well, why don't you polish the silver? And my, my grandfather was an engineer. He was a very meticulous person. So he always did things meticulously. So he took the silver polish, and he spent like 30 minutes polishing the silver. Like every little, like... And then <laughs> he said, okay, I finished polishing the silver. Now what should I do? And she said, well, just put it on the washing machine. 20 minutes, she doesn't hear from him. She starts looking around the apartment. She finds him in the, wa in the laundry room and he's carefully, meticulously applying the silver polish to every spot on the washing machine. 
<laughs> because the character of the person stays. Like their personality, the way they do things stays. But like their, their, their knowledge of reality is totally... Anyway, it's a, it's a, a very sad but also interesting kind of a thing. Anyway, my Bobby had to have a hip surgery and she was gone. She, was, she didn't visit for about six weeks. This was after he didn't know who he was, who she was, anything. Six weeks come by, she goes to visit him. She's walking in into the entrance. And I apologize in advance, but I'll say the story as it happened. And um, my grandfather's like shuffling down the hallway, just happened to be, and uh, he sees her. He shuffles over to her. He looks at her and goes, where the hell are you? For the rest of my baby's life, that was the moment. That was like her whole life. That was the best thing that happened to her. Like that's on some level, this sense of, I don't know who you are, I don't know who I am, but the sense that we belong with each other and you were missing, registered, and it, it, it resonated so deep that anytime she, that story was brought up, you could just, she would melt. Now, what happened? What does it look like? It doesn't look like anything. But if you're inside that experience, it's a, the, so now the question is, when we say love, with a desire, with a sense of you wanting to be together, right? Okay, there's lots of ways that could be. Is the thing that we're looking for something that is something that's explosive? Something that's that's a, 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 a flash? Or are we looking for something that stays within the person? It burns within the person. And therefore it has a transformative effect on that person. So the godly soul has the power to love Hashem. Do you need to do his bonus? The answer is no. You don't need to do his bonus. You can get the, you can get the love out of your godly soul without his bonus. But then what does it look like when it comes out? It, it, the extreme case, it's explosive. Milder cases, it feels like upliftedness, inspiration. People, like Jews experience this kind of thing all the time. But what it doesn't have is it doesn't actually change anything about you and doesn't there, it doesn't stay as part of you. And that's the issue here. The issue is not how do you get love? And, or to put this in other words, is the goal of getting love to have the experience of the love? Or is the goal of the love because what the love says about me and the, my beloved, about our relationship? Is it about building something or is it about experiencing something? That's a the very different thing. And so when the Alter Rebbe is saying in Tanya, this is how you do it because he's giving a person a path of how to approach life. He's not giving you a, a, a guidebook to how to have particular experiences. If you want to make your soul burst into flame with a passionate love of Hashem, there are other ways you can do that that don't require his bonus. And those are genuine. They're genuinely what they are. They're genuine experiences of intense feeling of, of being drawn towards Hashem that comes from the godly soul. But the reason why the Alter doesn't talk about them in Tanya is because what, is that, what does that do? The answer is it doesn't do anything. It's an experience you have. And, and by the way, sometimes you have those experiences without trying to. Hashem gives you those experiences. Those experiences can be opportunities to like re-examine things after that experience. But the experience in and of itself, 
after the, after the explosion happens, not only is there no fire left, but what, what, what's left, what left after an explosion? Nothing, right? Often, these kinds of intense experiences, not just that they don't last, but they often leave something destructive in their wake because the person doesn't have a framework for dealing with them. So the idea here is not, and I'll give you an interesting example. There's a, there's a phenomenon I've noticed in, in, that, that Bachram sometimes have is that they come to Israel and they go to the Kotel and they feel very inspired. So they make a decision that they're going to go to the Kotel regularly. And at some point, the inspiration doesn't happen at the Kotel. And then they become set on the selfless path of trying to figure out how do I like, what do I need to do to have that experience again when I'm at the Kotel? And then their whole life, you know, until someone dissuades them of this, becomes this like, how do I get back to that moment? And what, what happens to like the rest of all of their, you know, learning and growing? Is that, is that actually, they came to learn and grow. Now what's happened to that? It gets left on the side, why? Because they're, they're trying to recapture that moment of magic and so, the, not that that wasn't real, not that that wasn't genuine, not that it was fake, not that they're deluding themselves, but it, that's what it is. It's a flash, it's an explosion. It's real fire, but it's not a fire that, 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 that is sustained. And then, what? You could definitely put it that way. And so, and to be very, very clear, the Alter Rebbe, in many of his discourses, he does not knock the other kind. He thinks it's very important. But if you're trying to tell a person what they should do, what they should work on, that's a very different thing. It's like this, yeah? Are compliments important? Let's use this analogy. And and in and of themselves, do they have a proper place in life? Yeah, okay. In a relationship, complimenting people is important? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what should you do to ensure that people compliment you? Be somebody worthy of compliments. Right. That's about it. Because anything else you do actually makes, is counterproductive. Now, if people compliment you, now, now if, we're, if we shift the discussion and say, what should you do when someone else compliments you? That's different, right? So if you want to talk about the value of these kinds of intense, powerful experiences and what you should do when they happen, that's a very important thing. But if you say proactively, what should you be working on? Well, those things are, those, those, you should be working on something that is, that is, that is, has a persistence, has a staying power, is something that, that, that stays with you, that builds on itself. Okay, the other interesting thing about, a, about, about coals when they burn is what happens as the coals start to die down? Does the, you have to lose the fire? Or can you just add more coals? If you add more coals before the other coals completely burn out, right? But if you have something like an explosion or flash paper, you can't even add more stuff to it gone before you can, 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 can. And so the altar is describing is the, the, the importance of doing this bonus is to get something that becomes part of the person, becomes integrated in the person, becomes something that's, that, that stays with them, that they build on, that they refer back to. Not something that is extraordinary, but something that is actually, for lack of words, ordinary or, re, or redefines what's ordinary for them. So now, what if somebody, this is just a theoretical thing, what if you see that somebody spiritually is in a very dark place? I don't mean dark in the sense like they're depressed. 
I mean, dark in just the sense that the sen- that the sense of having a soul, having an ashama, God being real, is just something that they're oblivious to. Should you come and tell them? I think what you need to do is do some isbainus. You should do some contemplation, reflecting on the greatness of God. No, that's not what you do. Why? It's not going to help. Yeah, like, 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 first off, that requires a tremendous amount of, 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 of um, dedication and seriousness and sincerity. Why would the person do that? Would it might be appropriate to figure out if you can trigger them to have a kind of a flash of their own Hashem, a flash of their own love for Hashem? Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. But the, what would be the point of that in that context? Would be the point of that that they should just have that and then keep having that and keep having that? Or is the point of that 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 all of a sudden opens their eyes that there's something else? There's something worth... Uh, uh, so there's some whole other aspect of their existence they were unaware of. How do you do that? So, one of the, one of the things that the, the Rebbe spoke about is that this is one of the reasons why why the Rebbe instituted the idea of mitzvahim. Giving a person an opportunity to do a mitzvah that they haven't been doing can, can trigger that kind of a thing for a person. I can't guarantee it will happen, but it can. And it's actually more likely to happen if they haven't been doing that mitzvah than it is. In other words, I put on tefillin every day. The likelihood that me, I'm going to put on tefillin, all of a sudden it's going to start hit me that, well, there's something else about life. Is very unlikely to happen. I just put on six days a week. But if a person hasn't put on tefillin since their bar mitzvah, they haven't put on tefillin at all, there's actually more likely that, that the contrast between having totally detached from the experiences of their neshama and then the contrast to actually engaging in that mitzvah creates that kind of an explosion or that flame. And that, that doesn't necessarily transform them, but it's, it opens their eyes. And obviously there needs to be follow-up with that kind of thing. I'm not, so there's, there's a whole different thing. And... A lot of what Chassidus historically was, going all the way back to the Balshantav, was that. Was a, was a, was a, a person who their neshama was, a, was, was, on, was on fire, trying to insp- inspire and awaken a person to the fact that there's other stuff is going on. But then, but then that's not something that's sustained in within the person. And that's why the Altar Rebbe brings up this idea of his bonus. Not because it's the only way to experience genuine love. It's just the only way to experience a love which is like a coal, a love which is integrated, which can be sustained and maintained and replenished and built on itself. Yeah. Um, is, so I was thinking, like, why would Chabad do more like meditation session type things? Is it because they're mostly dealing with Jews who are in such a place of darkness that they need explosion? In the, sh- in, 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 you know, uh, yeah, that's basically it. So in a more firm community, in a community that's majority religious, should there be regular meditation sessions? Well, I mean, like what? well, so, I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, there is the issue of, there is the issue of other pressures and things like that, but, but setting all that aside, um, yeah, I mean, his brain is fundamentally something done as an individual, so there can be guidance and things like that. Meditation sessions are not really the right way of thinking about it, but if you mean that, for sure, for sure. Okay, but that, I'm just thinking because I know like people will do classes or community stuff, so, like programs, yeah, but, uh, but there's not like. Also, there are different kinds of Fabrengans. Fabrengans that are about people who like their whole connection to Judaism is very tenuous. Um, 
or even if they're religious, but they're just cold to the thing, which also is very common, that kind of a fabrengen is a very different fabrengen than people who are trying to cultivate this kind of a sense of Hashem, this kind of an awareness of their neshama, of their godliness, that fabrengen tends to be much more intimate, much more personal, much more um, people needing to be more vulnerable with each other. Um, and, and yeah, it's a different style, 100%. And but yeah, the, the, when you have a grouping of people like that, then the community and you know the way the way the davening looks is very different. Let's give you a very simple example. Should singing be part of one's prayers? Yeah. Like, and I, I mean, I don't mean I, I mean like you know like the happy kind of like you know sing along singing. And the answer to that in Chabad is well, it depends what you're trying to achieve with your prayers. Awesome. Well. If you're trying to achieve a sense of trying to trigger the neshama, trying to trigger the sense of warmth towards Judaism, then of course you should do that. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to really alter your perceptions of yourself and reality and your, your place relative to God, you need to be doing something that's a little more introspective. And, 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 and the way music plays it, and there's, there's still a place for music, but the kind of music that plays in that tends to be very A, individual, and tends to be more soulful, and, and deeper rather than cheery and upbeat. And it's not one is right and one is wrong. It's like, what's better, you know, a, a, a cup or a spoon? It says, well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to drink coffee? Are you trying to eat soup, right? It, it's not a better or worse. It's just, what are you trying to do? Here in the time, he's trying to give a person a guide to living this deeper kind of a life where that they can, make, they can maintain their relationship with Hashem using their own inner abilities, well, then the kind of love we're working towards is this kind of a love. But that doesn't need to negate the relevance of that other kind of an experience at all. Right? So that's the answer to the question of why it's, when you read Tanya, it sounds like you have to have his bonus, and yet there's plenty of places even in Chabad where it says that's just not true. Okay. Now, then he says like this. He says, this love is with a passion, desire, longing, and a yearning soul. And in Hebrew, those are five words. And they all basically mean desire. He uses five words, synonym, five Hebrew synonyms for desire, that they did passion, desire, longing, yearning soul. Um, the words in the Hebrew are chasheka, chafetza, chuka, nefesh, shakeka. Nefesh okay, can be read as desire. It can be read as a. a it can be read as, uh, as um, how do they translate it here? Yearning soul. Yearning soul. But nefesh, um, nefesh, also can itself mean desire. Um, that, that expression is actually quite common in rabbinic Judaism. Memanafshach, um, which means, and so the word there, those, what do you want? And the word nefesh is being used for want and desire. So. The reason why the Alter B uses five different words that basically all mean the same thing as desire is because the soul has many different levels. I'm sure you've heard this, that the soul has five levels. You've heard this before? What? The first one is Chasheka. Yeah. So the soul has five levels. You've heard this before or not? Yeah. I once saw it on the board. That's why I'm assuming that it was... I didn't teach it. I only taught there are three levels. So if the soul has five levels, no matter what level of the soul you're on, there is a kind of way that that desire is experienced. So this is alluding to the fact that this desire has degrees depending on what level of the soul has, 
being manifest. I don't want to get into that. Um, but that's what it means. That this, this desire has, it's not, it, 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 there are qualitatively different ways it can be experienced depending on what level of soul a person is really operating with. Okay. So there we got like five words out at once. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. In the Nigan, some of the Hanafshi, is that a double entendre? Is that how you say it? For the word nafshi? Like, my desire is thirsty for you and my soul is thirsty for you? You could, although I never saw it that way, but yeah. Okay. You could. Okay. Fine. Now, what is this yearning and desiring towards? It's towards the greatness of the blessed Ain Sof. Okay. This is very important. Okay. When you love someone, there are three parts to the love. How many parts are there to love? Three. Three. There's why you love. There's the love. And what's the third part? What? What? What you love. What you love. Why you love, the love, and what you love. In other words, like this. There's what made you feel this way. What does it actually feel like? And where does that feeling push you towards. For instance, let's go back to our fish. If I love fish, why do I love the fish? No, someone to answer. Why do I love the fish? You Knowing it's me. What? I love the way it makes me, right? I love the way it makes me feel when I taste it, right? Okay. So therefore, and what is that? Now, what does it feel like to love fish in that way? What? You're about to say a word. Yeah, it does have a selfishness to it, right? It does have a certain kind of selfishness. I don't mean like it's a moral statement. Actually, you do feel selfish. I wasn't going to say that. But it's true. You know how I know? Because, I mean, fish, I'm not a big fish fan, but I do like pizza. And so when there's like one piece of pizza and I want to eat the pizza and my kids want to eat the pizza, I all of a sudden become acutely aware of how selfish I am in my desire to eat the pizza. Yeah. So there you go. It has a selfish feeling to it. You could split it in half. I could, but that would mean I'd get less pizza. Better than no pizza. We're not talking about that publicly. <laughs> <laughs> you should buy two pizzas. But then, what does the thing I actually love? Well, the thing I actually love is that closeness to the fish or the pizza, which means actually eating it, right? Okay. Now, with that one, it's pretty easy. Now let's do this. Let's say you love a friend of yours. Why do you love them? What does it feel like? And what exactly is it that you love? Yeah. You love the way it makes you feel about yourself. Like if they're validating you, or like you just feel good when you're around them. That's again, like you feel good. It's not, we don't love them for who we uh, So this gets the problem is I'm gonna, when I'm going to use friend, I want to be a friend without the objectification. Why, yeah, what made you love, why you love, what the love feels like, and what it is you actually love. So, yeah, let's do the friend, a friend that you're not, it's not, a, where there's no objectification. Which I would say is a real friend. What? Is there always a why? There's always a why. Sure. Otherwise, you would just love things at random arbitrarily. Like, all of a sudden, you would love, like, I don't know, the second stone on that row of stones in that building. Because, like, why not? Because love has no reason. <laughs> That's, it's clear there's a why you love. Why do you love a friend without objectification? Could it be like respect? By the way, it's just that, that the way you can tell is because you have a genuine interest in them, what's going on in their life, and you're willing to suffer for that, right? Okay, so we're talking about those kinds of friends. Could it 
Because it could be respect for their values and the way they live their life. Mm, right? Respect can bleed into admiration, right? And admiration, right? That resonates very deeply with the, with the part of you that desires a, a, a more noble existence, right? And so your awareness of the fact that there's something really admirable about them. And it's important, this admirable thing that you see in them is something they also see in themselves. Right? So you're not objectifying them. You're actually seeing them on some level as they see themselves. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that still objectification? Like if I'm saying there's something about my friend that I admire or respect, then I am appreciating the inspiration that I feel from that attribute. So this was something we discussed earlier, is that it makes a very big difference whether they see that same thing as part of themselves and therefore would feel validated by being seen that way or not. Because objectification doesn't mean that, that uh, objectification means you're treating them like an object. An object has no internal experience. So if I love somebody for how they make me feel and that's it, well, that's objectification. But if what I'm loving about them is something about how they see themselves and therefore I want to be part of also what they're seeing in themselves, I want to be part of their subjective experience, then I'm, then I'm, I'm very much treating them like a subject. It's still limited. It's still not like, you know, a love with no bounds. No, it's, it's, but, but it's not objectification. I'm not treating them like an object. I genuinely, and, you, and you, when we get to the what, what you want, we'll, you'll, see what, you'll see where the difference is. Now, what does that feel like? When, 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 when you actually feel that kind of love. But not all friends are this way, but let's just use this example, right? Of a friend. There's things about them that are very admirable. They see themselves in that light. You see them as that light that resonates with you. So something that really is part of their experience of themselves is something that attracts you to them. There's, you know, these loftier, nobler qualities, the way they live their life. And how do you feel about that? Like, how do you feel? What does that actually experience feel like? Connection. Right? You feel a sense of connection. Right? So like if they, if they were to move, and I mean move whether it's geographically or involvement in something, that would kind of, you would feel a pulling in that direction. Right? If that person all of a sudden were to get into a particular topic, you would also feel a sense of being drawn to those kinds of things. If they move somewhere, right? and you want to be closer to that, right? so there's the sense of, of that. What else? What else would it feel like? So you have this sense of like a being pulled in a particular direction. What else? Passion. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of enthusiasm. Um, another thing that another thing that another thing that you would you would feel you would feel like your life. Just the very fact that this person is there and you want to be with them, you feel your life has, has been uplifted. It's a, it's a, it, it's a better life. There's a sense of being enriched. Okay. But here's the thing. All of that doesn't just stay within you. You, you, you want to therefore, what, do you, what is it that you love? You love them and so you want to be with them. And now what does it mean to be with them? This is the tricky part. If it's fish, you eat the fish. If it's your objectifying them, you just have to get them to make you feel that particular way and then you're done, right? But now what exactly you want? You want to create a connection with them. Yeah, you want some sense of mutuality, some sense of togetherness. Some sense that you're both in some, that you're seeing each other and you're part of the same thing. See where the objectification isn't there? It, it is, 
if, if I getting what I want, but they're like, let's like give you an example. If you, if you, if you find, if you have a friend because you think they're funny, yeah, and it's really objectification, then it really doesn't matter if deep down they're not feeling very humorous. All you care about is the fact that they make you laugh. But then there's a, but then, ha, then there's people that, like, if, if you were to realize that they're just putting on an act, even though it's really funny for you, that would all kill the whole thing. Then what does that mean? Then on some level, you don't really want the humor per se. You want how the humor brings you together. And so if it's just a one-sided experience, I'm not interested in it anymore. Which means I want that sense of, of it being mutual. I don't just want to be able to observe you or take from you. I want to be involved with you and you to be involved with me. Does that make sense? Now, what's the problem with that? What problem does that create? If the end of the day, what I love is pizza, then I have a very simple solution, which is eat the pizza. If at the end of the day, I love people being funny, I can just go on YouTube and find a comedian to my tastes and problem solved, right? But if I want to be involved with someone because I admire you know, the, the way they live their life and their nobility, what's the problem? They have to also want. They have to also invite me in. And so I am fundamentally desiring something I cannot have or I cannot take for myself. I can be granted, but I can't take it. This goes back to having the fear beforehand. What I want, I can't take. Yeah. If you love a friend and that friend hates something about themselves, should you also hate it? I don't want to answer that because hating something about oneself generally is, involves usually things that are not applicable back to God. And since we're using this as an analogy for God, we're not going to go there. It's an interesting question. There are many different ways of answering depending exactly what you hate, but because I don't think that there's a real correlation with that with God, I'm going to leave it aside. I only ask because you were saying something about if like the qualities they admire in themselves, you also find admirable. Yeah. So you would have to if you so if you want it, if you would want to we spoke about the greatness of God. You would, the things that make God great to you would have to be also things that make God great to himself, which is why we had to speak about God operating on three different levels. There has to be a level in which what you see is great in God, he sees what's great in God, otherwise you are objectifying him. Yeah. So you have, there's, there's a very big problem with loving someone, which is that it requires them to consent to be involved with you. Okay. Now, let's say they consent. Let's say they agree in principle, good idea. Now all of a sudden you're mutually involved with each other? No. Why not? Both need to work equally. Why? It's not just an agreement on paper. It's a bond. You get the pizza after what you've got in front of you. But what's the problem? Let's say me and my brother, and you say, you know what, I really, I mean, this is really not the same thing, but let's just say me and my brother, we're very different personalities. But we want to spend more time together. We want to be really, okay, so now, great. You agree, I agree, we're all good, we're okay. Let's spend time together. Okay, so we'll just go do it. What's the problem? Figure out something in common. You have to figure out a way to be mutual, a way to be on the same page, 
Because at the end of the day, just because you admire something, just because something resonates with you, doesn't mean that you're actually operating the same way. In fact, very often, you admire things in others that you yourself struggle with. So like, I admire this person, they're so noble, they're so good-hearted, and I want to spend so much time with them, but I'm not noble and good-hearted. So it's like, I have a hard time like, being involved in their, like, even if they invite me in, I have a hard time being there. And like, for them to be involved in, in my things, that's not really, there's a problem here, is that really, it's a twofold problem. There's, one is a problem that you don't get to control whether the other person really wants you as part of their life. Two, even if they want you as part of your life, you have the problem that you're still different people that work differently, that operate differently. And so you can clash and miss each other and speak past each other and not find a way to, actu- to, to bring out an actuality being together. Even though you both want to. So it's not such a simple thing to... to to get what you love when you love someone. When you love something, it's a technical question. Do you have the power, the resources to get it? If you do, great. If you don't, too bad. Yeah. What about a friend that like you've developed this and you've mutually grown, but then like there's like space between you because whatever life and people change. And then you still have that like original bond, but like it doesn't continue. That, you that, still that, love that, the person, but you don't. This is exactly that problem is that you want you you the thing about them you still you still it still bonds you but you want to get ready to be bonded to them right you're not objectifying them and there's now more stuff about them and stuff about you that don't fit together and so now your differences are the things that are holding you apart this is this this is this is that happens. Have a love for that. I'm for sure you have a love. You just can't have a connection. That's the problem. In other words, loving someone has a built-in frustration to it. That's what, that's what I'm trying to get towards. When you love something, it's not necessarily frustrating. Why? Because, when I get it, I get it. If I love someone, there's always the problem that I will eventually encounter the places that we do not, we're not the same. We don't work well together. We, we speak past, whatever it is, everybody's different. And so even if both parties really do want to be involved with each other, there's a problem of you're still different. Now, there's two ways of dealing with this. One way is to just make the relationship superficial and stay focused on the place where you can easily get along with each other, easily spend time together and ignore everything else. And what does that do? That kind of artificially like, puts love in a box. Or you can let the love feel the love and, and experience that desire, but then you encounter the fact that, 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 that you love someone who's different than you and, they, they, and, and that, that has a built-in frustration to it, that even the desire to come together means there's obstacles that have to be overcome. And those are, those, even if you succeed in overcoming them, they have to be overcome. You have to figure out how to work through them. One of the, one of the difficult things is that as a person loves another person more, the ability to really work through differences becomes more and more problematic because things, the sm- smaller differences all of a sudden become a bigger issue because the desire to be connected grows and grows and grows and grows. Now this is, by the way, even just if it's between people. Yeah. Um, how do you know... I don't know, maybe this is too broad of a question, but I'm asking it relevant to love of God. Um, like, how do you know, where, where do we decide, or how should we decide, like, where to invest in that process? 
and where to kind of say, okay, this, this person is different from me. I, you know, I enjoy being around them and we can have a superficial acquaintance relationship, but there's no reason for me to invest in like a real friendship. And, and I'm especially asking because there are people who very much feel like Jews, if you want to limit it to Jews also, who very much feel that like, yeah, God, you know, created the world might even be out there, but I don't feel the need to relate to him more deeply than like once a year on Yom Kippur. So the thing is like this, I'm not going to answer that question because that's not the issue we're dealing with. I want to deal with is a different issue. Is why does this person? Yes, I want to get to this issue, but I want to. If you have like, and so is this where we get the idea that like you can have a love hate relationship? Is that frustration? I mean, yeah, I wouldn't put it that way because that that's when the well, that's when there's actual things that are antagonistic between the two. I would say, like, you know, I I wouldn't use the word hate, but. But I would say that love is, is definitely... Or this anxiety feeling you were talking about yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, how do I connect? And how do we make it work? Because it doesn't... It's, and, like, it can be very, very frustrating to try and connect and keep missing each other and keep bumping into each other the wrong way. Yeah. So, like, would it be bad to, like, have a friend or, like, have a relationship with Hashem, like, just for the use for one thing? Like, I'm going to keep her as a friend because... She makes me laugh sometimes. It's like, oh, Hashem, I'm going to keep you there. Just like when I'm like going through a hard time, I can open the Siddur and dive into you and you can help me. So that's objectification. And that means that the relationship will remain very, very shallow. And, you know, it's not... You know, not, it's not it, 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 if a, per, a person can't have that attitude towards somebody... And then have that person also be an important part and central to their life. Those two things are, don't work together. So a person says, I want to have Judaism be central to my inner life and have this relationship with Hashem. And but by attitude towards him, I'm just going to keep him when I need him. You can't have both of those approaches at the same time. But isn't it better to rather have him there a little bit than to not have him at all? Sure. The, everything, one of the things about Chassidus is Chassidus never makes absolute judgments. Because everything is always better than something else in some respect. And so the question is always in the particular person's individual life, what's right for them? Okay. But the thing that we're talking about now is if a person says, I really do want to make Hashem central in my life, well, then, then yeah, you do, can't have that attitude. And if you try to do both, you're gonna, then you're, you're like setting yourself up for failure because you're contradicting yourself. And yeah, that's a struggle many of us face, that we want this deep relationship. We also want the freedom to like, put him in a box and take him out when we need him. We have that problem with our people too. We have lots of friends that we want both kinds of relationships. You can't have both kinds of relationships with the same person. God is, as it says here, ain't sof without end. And the whole way we got this love is by reflecting on the greatness of him. How his greatness is far beyond, right? He fills the worlds, he surrounds the worlds, before him is nothing. Which means, what is the thing about God that is appealing to the person who's doing this as bonus? What is it about God that's so, that makes God so beloved, so lovely to that person? What? His infinity. His, his, his right? And that in, infinite, that, that being infinite, that being is unique to him, right? It's not something you share in common with him. 
right? You don't fill the world. You don't surround the world. Before you, it's not everything is nothing, right? What he has and whatever level you're operating on is unique to him. Do you see, so you see there's a problem here? If you love somebody for something that's unique to them, so you have a, now you have a real, it's one thing if you love something for something that, for, for, love someone for something that you have in, in common. But if I really appreciate something about you, that you also appreciate about yourself, but it's totally unique to you, that on some level, I, I'm desiring the unattainable. There's a tragic element in this whole thing. You could. Right? Good. But then what you have to do is you have to take that, 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 that love, that passion, that desire and do what with it? You have, to, you, have to, you have to suppress, you have to put it aside. But if you allow that, because, because, because if, 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 if this analogy that's used, and it, what if what you love about someone is how brilliant they are and you're stupid? You have a problem, a very big problem, because how exactly is this supposed to work? Like you, you want to be close to them, and you want to be close to them because you see their, their their depth and their genius and their brilliance, and they see it, and they, and yet when they start actually opening their mouth to kind of share, invite you into that, you get totally lost. <laughs> like, so it's like, what do you stand aside and don't participate? Well, then you're then you're far away from your beloved. You do participate. Well, then, then you're also far. Like you're far either way, and this is the problem. There's a level. There's a level of of the of 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 loving God. Not just as another generic ver- God is not just another version of me and you, right? That's the whole point. There's the things that make God great that are unique to God, and there's there's three levels to that as we spoke about. But if that actually is something that has hit the person and sinks into the person, and now they're loving God for for for, for God's greatness, for what makes Him special. Well, then what? Right, That's like, then what? Now what am I supposed to do? I'm not him. I can't be like that. Yeah. Not in regards to God, but say it's like, to, like a human relationship. Isn't there this idea that like, you know, just appreciate something in someone else and you have to have that too? Or like, same for like when you say it's like a... You're criticizing someone for something that's actually because they're a mirror and like you have that. So yes. How would there be a disparity in? Is it just like the level of that quality that a person? Okay, has? okay. So that that's very very important. That's why this love is the love of the godly soul. Because the godly soul, even though it's limited and even though it's clothed in human form and all these other things, it has that basic sensitivity to the to to. It has a taste for godliness. It, ha- it, re- it resonates. But there's the problem. Is that, and, and that's why the analogy I use is a good analogy. Even the stupid person is still a rational being. They still have an intellectual faculty within themselves. They still resonate with them. It's just, it's so ineffective. So yeah, you know, a, a, a cat does not desire, does not love somebody because they're a genius, because the cat doesn't have a rational faculty. But the stupid person, I'm using the word stupid because it's, it's, it's derogatory to emphasize the point. As much as, you, as much as that would be an accurate description of the person, but they're still a person, so they still have that sense. 
And therefore, they can admire that in the other person, but now they're in a bind. They're in a serious problem. So this is, and that's the, this kind of love is unique to the godly soul. That what do I desire about God? What's unique to God? His greatness. Why? Because I have a godly soul. My godly soul, it's sensitive to that, but it's not capable of being that. It's not capable of being part of that. So now what's going to happen? Right? You know, you, you, you know what a romantic is? What's the opposite of a romantic? Realist. Why? There's a lot of words you could use. Real, go with realist. But that, that's a good word. Why? Why is a realist the opposite of a romantic? Okay. They wear rose-colored glasses. Not all romantics. I don't know if you've read a lot. They romanticize the situation. It's not the real situation. Okay, so the, I'm using the, the romantic in more of the, the period, the, 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 like the period of like romantic music and literature from after the Enlightenment. That's what I meant. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't, which, which, ble, which then bled into our modern use of it. But that's like a more watered down version of it. I was referring to that use. If you were to tell a romantic, that's never going to work. You're setting yourself up for failure. What does the romantic say? I don't care. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I can't. Like, it, 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 it means too much to me. It's too powerful for me. It's doomed. So what? And what does the pragmatic person, the realist person say? Well, like, let's, 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 let's say it. cost benefit. Is this really a good idea? I mean, should, it's like if you if you have a romantic dolphin who falls in love with a chimpanzee, right? And you tell the dolphin, you know, this is never going to work. What does the dolphin say? I don't care. So I'll die. And I'll die, or I'll suffer the like. It doesn't matter. Like I can't let go of this yearning. What does the realist say? Well, if this doesn't going to work, I should you know shut off that feeling and find a more productive feeling. You see, there's, the, 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 this is, there's, we're, the kind of love here is that the soul yearns, this is where, this is where, you know, we have to, as much as we analogize things to like every generic human relationship we want, relationship with God is, 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 has some qualities which are very special, if not unique. But one of the special qualities is that there is something fundamentally tragic about a limited being falling in love with an unlimited being. With someone who is temporal and mortal falling in love with someone who's not. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is that the Rebbe would often um, tell people who wanted to marry non-Jews, the Rebbe wouldn't say they didn't love them. Like, there's this line, oh, a Jew can never really love a Jew. You could love them. But the Rebbe would try to just shift them out of the romantic notion by, like, this is not good for either of you. It's going to cause harm to you and cause harm to the non-Jew as well. But, yeah, I mean, but you're right. But, but there is, I mean, this is one of the, was, this was always one of the criticisms of the Misnagdim against the Chassidim is that the Chassidim are too romantic. 
Like, just be practical. Do the mitzvahs, keep Shabbos, derive a moral lesson, be a nice person. Like, why, why, why do you have to fall in love with God? Like, he's God. He's, he's infinite. He fills all reality. Like, you, you, you were born X number of years ago. Yeah, you have a lifespan. You have a limited, like, like you're going to fall in love with God? Like, do you realize that the pain you're setting yourself for, the, the ridiculousness of that? You want what you can, you want what you can't have. Aside from the fact, anytime you love someone, you need their consent. So who says God wants you th- th- this close? That's one thing. But even if he says, yeah, he he's in. <laughs> what? He I, I, I want you to appreciate the, 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 the leap of faith in our own ability to deal with something beyond just the pragmatism that the Altarab is talking about here. Right? And what is, I see your hand, but I want to go for a little more ground. And he calls, says, this constitutes the culminating passion of the soul. What does culmination mean? Yeah. How does passion end? Yeah. Yeah. It's called in Hebrew, kleis hanefesh. Ever heard this term before? Kleis hanefesh. How do they usually translate it when you have a chassidus class? Anybody? How do I spell that? The soul going up. The soul going up. <laughs> the soul expiring. Like, what does that mean? You could. You could. Chaf, lam, and vav, saf. And the next word, ha, nefesh. Hey, nun, feshin. What it means is like this. If you love what you can't have, and you keep loving, and you keep loving, and you keep loving, you become the thing you can't have? No, you have, you have to change. Well, what, you, I mean, look, what happens when someone becomes lovesick? Sick. They're sick. Why are they sick? Because they're blinded by everything else. Can they do anything? No. Okay. What happens if someone desires what they can't have and they're not pragmatic about it? They're not a realist about it. They're not realized that this is a fool's errand, that this is silly, this is not going to lead to anywhere. And they let that feeling grow and grow and grow and grow. What happens to them? They expire. They cease to function. And in theory, that could be so intense that literally the person dies. But even if they don't die, that's beside the point. It's not about dying. It's that it consumes, there's nothing left of them. There is no what's going to be tomorrow. There's actually a Hasidic song that, that starts with those words in Yiddish. Why should we worry about what's going to be tomorrow? Like it's, it's, it's really not realistic. It's, it's foolish. It's silly. Falling in love with the, the infinite... And allowing that feeling to grow in you and grow in you and grow in you so it takes up more of your psyche and more of your psyche and more of your psyche. What, where does that end? At the end. It ends at the end, right? What? That's why there's chapter four. <laughs> but the thing is, you can't appreciate chapter four unless you see the problem created by chapter three. Chapter four is a solution to this problem. Falling in love with God 
has a, an inherent frustration to it, an inherent problem to it. And if you, again, if you decide to realistic, look, this is like, it, it's, it, it's impractical. Let me just go back to like living whatever the practical life, even as a religious person, I'll do the Torah, I'll do the mitzvahs. But like, this is, this is too much. There were people like that. There were people who checked out chassidus of different kinds and like, too much for me. Like, I don't know. Like, I just, let me, tell me what to do. Tell me what's permitted. Tell me what's forbidden. When to eat, what not to eat. And, uh, you know, I'll get my ganeid and leave me alone. It's too much for me. That I would say this is poetic. That there, it's it's tragic when a limited being loves an unlimited being. <laughs> how, wh- where do you go from there? And if you let that feeling build and build, it eventually eats up. Just like fire burns everything, what does it do? It eats up everything in that person's mind, everything in that person's heart, everything in that person's, and there's nothing left of them. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that later in Tanya, too. So later after that, the Altar Rebbe says, because one of the things that God wants is a relationship with Him. Must have a relationship with Him. Mm-hmm. All of the other stuff has an element of not really relating to Him. It's like... It, it's like the difference between children loving their parents and children loving their parents. There's, there's, you're, you're, you're predisposed, you're biased. You're, and so like the fact that your parents have this particular quirk or that particular quirk or this particular values is like incidental, doesn't really matter. But to love someone for things that are uniquely them and distinctly them, that's a very different kind of a, of a feeling. It's a very different kind. Of, and when God created the world, the relationship that he wanted us to have with him is not just a relationship that's stable and pragmatic and functional and healthy, but one that is really unique to you and unique to him. And this is love. What's special about love like this that comes from contemplating his greatness is that you're loving him for him rather than loving him for the role he plays and you, that you're already predisposed to. Now, this is A, a loftier thing, and B, it, it has a huge problem to it. And that's why the ultimate doesn't conclude. He, this is the only, if you want to build a stable relationship with Hashem, if you want a, a love that's like a cold, there are other kinds of loves that are cold that don't have this quality, that don't have this tragic element to it. And yeah, and the altar actually sees a person needs to have a, you know, like a healthy diet of all things. And what that healthy diet does vary from individual to individual, too. So how much of this versus how much of that is not the same for one person or another. But there's something very special about loving someone for the things that are uniquely theirs. And not for what I'm already predisposed to because of something that has more to do with me. Although when it has more to do with me, it can be more stable. It can be easier to achieve. It can be more, more realistic. Alterba has that side in Tanya too. We're just not at that chapter right now. Yeah. So are we so attracted to Ain So because we are finite? That is a huge discussion in Chsidis as to um, the the answer is there is such a thing. Is that what Alterba is saying here or not is an interesting discussion. In other words, is our being finite itself making making the love act is that itself actually an element of the love or not? Um, 
you could read it. Like, listen, there's, there's, there's both ways of thinking about it are correct. There's a version like this, there's a version like that. Both would fit this description. I'm seeing it in the positive, so why, what's the other side? Like, why wouldn't it be that? If we had already said that often we admire things about others that we don't possess. I don't want to get into it right now. It's because I know it's because I know a bunch of other stuff that I don't want to introduce because I think it had too much information. But you're right. The way I presented it does lead more towards that reading of it. Mm-hmm. So we'll just stay with that. Okay. And then he brings some verses, which we'll, I guess we'll have to do next time. So, um, but I do want to emphasize that the idea that love is safe is something that, at least in the context of chapter three, you should be um, dissuaded by. And that's, the, that's, what, that's what the romantic said. Love isn't safe, and we embrace the danger. Safe. What? Not safe. Because you not could... Safe. You, yeah. It's not safe. What? No, there's, there's lots of stuff that's safe. Nothing's guaranteed. Okay, fine. What's safe? What's safe? Fear. Respect. Fear safe? Respect is safe, yeah. How does respect safe? Because that means I, I, I give you what you need, you give me what I need, so I don't interfere with you. What? it's safe, but respect can change overnight. No, I'm talking about, I don't, I'm saying the thing itself is safe. The thing itself. There's nothing dangerous in respect. Yeah, gotcha. There's something dangerous in love, especially loving someone for something that's unique in them that's yeah. beyond you that's really dangerous yeah, yeah. Well, even like even like parental love yeah every love has an element of danger to it yeah. that's what makes love exciting uh-huh. Uh-huh. what else is safe down here what what else is safe 